The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. How are you guys doing? Hey, turn if you would to Mark chapter 10. Um, just a reminder, something that we've started doing on Wednesday nights and if I could learn how to preach shorter, we might do it on Sundays. <laughs> but um, if you have any questions about anything that we're going to be talking about, and I strongly encourage you to ask them, um, the odds are is like you might have one of those questions, you're like, I don't want to ask it. But, and then you end up having the question that like three other people had anyway. So um, what we want to do is try to save time towards the end to do some Q&A. And so you can do that by texting the questions that you have to, do we have that slide for that number? Yeah? It's what? He's working on it? We're still putting stuff back together, aren't we? To, anyway, so here you go. 541-944-4717. If you have Sam's cell phone number, then you've already got that programmed into your phone. So you can do that. But um, 944-4717. They'll get the slide up in a minute and so you'll have that. And we'll try to take an opportunity at the end to answer a couple of questions if they come up. Um, or for me to not answer a couple of questions if I don't know the answer to them. So anything, any of that is fair game. So we're in Mark chapter 10 today. Let me ask you guys a question here. What would you think, if you had to answer, what's maybe the most important day of a marriage? I mean, some would say, well, probably the most important day is the days before you get married. Some would argue that. And they would say, well, the reason is, is because you have to find the right one. The one. You've heard this? You have to find the one, your soulmate. Um, and that's if you buy into that, there's that one person out there that God has created for you. I think if that's true, then God is cruel. Um, because doesn't even say like that a good wife, a noble wife in Proverbs 31, who can find? Like he, he even talks about the fact that there's like a legitimate challenge here and that these are the, the, the attributes that you're looking for if you're a man looking for a wife and for him to say, and I'm only making one of them for you. Out of all the people, I, I don't believe that at all. I believe that, that you can certainly, if you want to say it, hedge your bets. I think you need to find someone that's a soul, as in the soul, uh, where is our soul inclined towards someone who seeks to worship God. And there's common interests can play in and all those kinds of things, but I do not believe in a soulmate, if you will, the way Hollywood portrays them. But some would even say, well, it's not even so much about that, but it's about you got to know what you're getting into. So you need to understand marriage. You need to be able to study it in advance. You need to have all that stuff kind of laid out. And so as a result, and one of the most important days, if you will, of a marriage is actually before you even get married, maybe. Some people would say that the most important day of your marriage is the first day of your marriage, is the day that you get married. And, and there's an argument to be made. I mean, it's a really big deal. You are standing before God making a covenant to love someone for the rest of your life. Um, we, don't, we take that really seriously here at Heritage. I, I did a, a, a wedding about a week and a half ago, and in the, the wedding sermon, if you will, um, I was talking about the reality of the covenant, about what that really means, what we're doing when we pledge to honor and love someone for the rest of our life. And someone actually came up to me, actually more than one person afterwards came up to me and they were like all thankful doing the whole, man, I can't remember the last time I heard a wedding in which the gospel and the reality of this covenant was proclaimed in the marriage service. And I thought, that is tragic. 
That is tragic that people go up there and they don't understand the reality of what they're doing. Um, I used to like, when I would do premarital counseling, I would say, so are you guys going to write your own vows? How is this all going to play out? I don't let people write their own vows anymore. I just don't. Because when people write their own vows, they say things like, they talk about their feelings. They talk about the emotions and all this kind of stuff. And I don't really care how anyone feels. I mean, they, they feel happy, they feel excited, but that's not the basis for marriage. Because anyone that's been married for longer than a second understands that feelings come and go. It's just the reality of it, right? I'm more concerned with what you're going to do. And I've never heard any traditional marriage vows throughout the history of the world that just say, as long as I feel. Um, vows are about, that they're about action. They're about volition. They're about what we're going to do. Um, so some people would say the most important day of the marriage is day one. You're making a really important vow before God. And that might be the case. I don't think so. I think the most important day of a marriage is the last day. How does it end? What does the end of your marriage look like? Because my parents took marriage seriously. They grew up in Christian homes. They understood what they were getting into. So they had taken care of this whole before they got married. On the day of their marriage, they knew what they were getting into. They stood before God and man, and they made the vows that promised to love one another forever and ever. And 26 years of marriage looked like everything was on track, but it didn't end well. And so I can't to this day look at my parents' marriage and point to it as something that throughout its entirety honored God. Now there's blame to throw around heavier in one area than the other for sure. But I think, you know, I think we put a lot of stock into the first day. We plan the first day. We think about the first day. We spend some of us our lives dreaming about the first day. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about the last day. What's our marriage going to look like on the last day? Now, in our text today, we're going to be talking a little bit about that. This is a controversial text that we're going to be looking at in Mark chapter 10. Um, the Institute of Marriage has really always been controversial. Um, even just in our more recent history, you could go back to some of the roots of views and attitudes towards marriage, let's say in the 60s and the free love and all that kind of stuff, um, how that all rolled out. Some of you guys, I see some people that would know. You guys know who Joni Mitchell is? Some of you guys know who Joni Mitchell is. Um, if you don't, you should look that up and stop listening to Bieber all the time. But um, Joni Mitchell wrote a song called My Old Man. came out in 1971, year before I was married. You guys recognize that song at all? Or is it just me? No one. All right. The lyrics said this, My old man, he's a singer in the park. He's a walker in the rain. He's a dancer in the dark. You recognize any of those lyrics? It was a pretty popular song at the time. It went on to say stuff like, When he's gone, me and them lonesome blues collide. The bed's too big. The frying pan's too wide. No one? No one. Wow. There's a few. Okay, good. <laughs> a plus for you for the day. But here was the choral refrain, if you will, that repeats over and over in that song. We don't need no piece of paper from City Hall keeping us tied and true. Four or five different times in the song. We don't need no piece of paper from City Hall keeping us tied and true. Turns out they probably did. That marriage didn't last very long. So she might have needed something different. But um, that was a common refrain at the day. We don't need some piece of paper telling us about who we can be with and what marriage looks like and all those sorts of things. Well, we come to this particular passage today. Um, at a time in our nation's history where marriage has again become incredibly controversial. Um, I touched on this Sunday 
And, and I'm not going to dig too deep on some of that because we've got a couple of weekends coming up probably where we're going to really dig into what the major controversy in our particular day is. But we live in a time right now um, when the institution of marriage is, is either being um, rejected by many or completely redefined and re-engineered by some. That's the current state of marriage where we are today. Some would say it's an old-fashioned notion that we'd be happier without. Others say traditional marriage is exclusive and we need to redefine it as a whole. And what we need to understand is that when a culture turns its back on the Creator's design for anything, especially marriage, there are moral, psychological, social, and spiritual implications that are unavoidable. I mean, I would challenge any of us to go to some of the statistics and the things that are coming out now, statistics about marriage, about family rates, about orphans, about foster care, divorce rates, heartache, counseling, depression, all of these sorts of things that are coming into play today. I mean, just go and yourself look at just the plain old statistics, not what the Christians say about it and not what the liberals or the unbelievers would say about it. Just look at the statistics and tell me we don't have some sort of social chaos going in, uh, going Going on within our family structure right, structure right now. It's the reality of it. This isn't punishment, by the way. This isn't God saying, all right, since you're not going to do it my way, I'm going to cause everything to spin out. But this is the inevitable result in doing things in opposition to how it's been designed to be used. It's not going to work right. It's just like if you read your, your, you buy a new car and they tell you this is where the gas goes, you can redefine it all you want and you can put the gas wherever else you want, but the car is only going to operate when you put the gas in the place where it is designed to go. And if you put anything else in that gas tank that's not designed to be in there, you're going to find, well, engine chaos is what you're going to find. This particular text is an opportunity for us as Christians to put back into practice Romans 12, 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Let me read that again. This is an opportunity for us as Christians as we look at this particular topic of marriage, a difficult one and a controversial one, specifically with regards to divorce. And in it is an opportunity for us as believers to put Romans 12, 1 and 2 into play, which says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And here's why I push on that before we even get into here. This is one of those passages that on the front end of problems, all of us can look at and nod and agree and say, absolutely, I believe in all this. But when the, so to speak, poop hits the fan, it's unbelievable how fast we will run from stuff like this. And so sometimes we need to understand who we are and what we've been called to do. And so when Paul says that about being transformed by the renewal of your mind, he doesn't mean we move off into some weird celestial different sort of existence. What he means is we look at things in the world different than people who don't believe in Jesus. We have a different outlook on life and on things in this world than those who do not believe in Jesus. That is what we as believers are called to do. 
C.S. Lewis had kind of the famous quote on this. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the rising of the sun, not simply because I see it, but because through it, I see everything else. So the idea is, it is through the reality of God's word and his will for our lives that we as believers see everything else, not through the cultural lenses that the world around us views, views these things today. And so it's important to lay this out, like I said, because we can nod in agreement all we want, but, but this is one of those kind of things that believers, when you run up against that wall, we can be quick to toss this one aside, and it ought not be so. But we'll get to that in a little bit. So we're in Mark chapter 1 today. Um, no, Mark chapter 10, excuse me, verse 1. And it starts with this. It says, And he left there, and he went to the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. So we talked about this last time we were together before our remodel uh, interruption there. You guys remember we looked at the map and Jesus has now moved away from his Galilean ministry. He's moved into Judea now. Um, and really the thrust of his ministry now begins to take a shift. Not that he doesn't do miracles anymore, but uh, much of his ministry beforehand, especially in the book of Mark, consists of Jesus coming on the scene and performing these miracles and this crowd would follow. But now Jesus is moving much more into a teaching emphasis much more into a teaching emphasis, which is really important. And in particular, he's calling people to repent and to turn and to follow him. So this is important to understand. The thrust of Jesus's ministry is about a rejection of the way things are and about turning and following him and living for a completely new kingdom moving forward. And so people are being drawn to him. They're being drawn to him because his teaching is authoritative. It's very bold. Um, it's very different than the mundane, drab, legalistic teaching that they're used to um, as they go to synagogue and hear the religious leaders. Um, and so they're being drawn to him. Not that they like everything that he has to say, but crowds are still coming. There's a large crowd that's gathering together to hear him. And in verse 2 it says, Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, when it says to test him, it doesn't mean that they wanted to sit down and try to figure out how much Jesus knew about the scriptures. That's not what they're asking. This word where it says to test him is the same word used um, earlier in, for example, in the book of Matthew, in the famous story that you guys know very well, where Jesus is drawn or goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Satan comes along and it says, and Satan came to test him. He's, it's not coming because I have a really legitimate interaction I'd like to have to try to figure out. I have some questions that are, that are legitimate and real, and I want to see what your heart is on some things. Um, there's another account in which the Pharisees come and quote-unquote test Jesus, but it gives us, also in the book of Matthew, really clear understanding of why they're coming there. It says specifically that they were coming to trap him. They're coming to, to try and catch him in his words here. And this is a heartbreaking thing to think about, because here's what we understand. These are religious people using the Word of God to try to undermine the Word of God. That's what's really at play here. They are using Jesus' very words to undermine what Jesus is doing himself, to undermine his work. And that is a heartbreaking thing to realize that, that not everyone who knows the Bible works for Jesus. You guys know that, right? Not everybody who knows the scriptures and not everyone who quotes the scriptures works for Jesus. Well, they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? 
There's two possible reasons why this is a trap, and they're probably both true to some degree. Uh, Number one, divorce was a big issue in this day with regards to um, the current leadership in this region, because there's a guy named Herod who had been involved in a scandalous divorce and then incestuous relationship afterward. John the Baptist, you remember, spoke out against it, and what happened? Beheaded because of it. So here's this Jesus who's going around and gathering a following, following, and he's constantly pointing his finger and calling out the sin and hypocrisy in the religious leaders. And so for them to come and say, What's your, what do you think about divorce? Maybe this is an opportunity for them. We, we need to shut this guy up. We want to undermine what he's doing. And if we can get him to make some sort of statement, well, we got rid of John the Baptist. He, he got himself in trouble speaking out that way. Maybe if we can get Jesus on the record now for these things, um, this problem will take care of itself. That's possible. Uh, One of the other ones is that in that day, um, the rabbinical teachings were kind of really classified into two distinct camps. One was a very literal interpretation of Scripture, or what you might consider a conservative interpretation of Scripture. The other was a really, really, really liberal. Not literal, liberal. So just kind of picking and choosing, and I don't mean political, so don't get fired up, but I mean this idea of we can just sort of pick and choose what we're going to use here, what we're going to follow, what we believe, and they were two very extreme camps. And so, for example, with regards to divorce, the conservative stream would take Jesus, excuse me, took the Old Testament writings to say the only reason someone can get divorced is in sexual adultery. And that was their belief. But then there were other rabbis on the other side, which was the more liberal side again, who they had translated and misconstrued and taken some of the passages that Moses writes that we'll get to out of context. And they were saying, you can divorce your wife if you find displeasure in her in any area. And so literally, there were teachings that said, if she messes up your dinner, you can divorce her. Literally. And you don't believe me, I'll read it to you. It says this. A man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her. For it is written, because he has found in her indecency in anything. And then the school of Hillel would say, he may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him. For if he found another fairer than she, it is written, and and she shall find no favor in his eyes. In other words, this, one group saying, if there's immoral, you know, a lack of chastity, there's been an affair, you can divorce. The other side, if you find displeasure for any reason, if she spoils your meal, you can divorce her. This is the reality of it. And so, The Pharisees are looking at this like, let's get Jesus to speak out. If he speaks out and says, okay, uh, I'm on this side, now he's alienated this one population base over here. If he comes over here and makes a statement and says, I'm on this side, now he's alienated this other way. In, In whatever side the trap falls on, the goal is clearly to discredit Jesus, to discredit his teachings, to undermine the very word of the Son of God. And so Jesus is very, very aware of this particular trap, their hypocrisy, and so he turns the tables on them. Look at Mark 10, verse 3. So he answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Um, Is that true? Yes, that is true. They're speaking out of Deuteronomy chapter 24, which says this, when a man takes a wife and marries her, If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, 
If she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter hates her and writes a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, sends her out of the house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who is sent away may not take her again to be his wife. Are you tracking? No. After she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Paraphrase is this. This particular guidelines were placed around this institute of divorce that included having to actually write out a certificate of divorce, papers actually having been served, and then even boundaries regarding remarriage after the fact. Now, it seems like, well, that, then why is the church so against divorce? What's going on here? Well, this is what you have to understand. Moses did provide, yes, this paper and said, if it's filled out properly, then he could divorce her. But Jesus pushes on this. Take a look at what he says now in verse 5. Jesus said to them, well, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this commandment. So here's what you have to know. Moses did not write this law into existence in order to create the institute of divorce. What Moses was doing, or God through Moses, I should say, is trying to put some sort of boundaries on what was already going on in the culture around there. And there's historical writings to back every bit of this up. But the idea is this. Even in Moses' day, there was this temptation to marry, divorce, marry, divorce. Uh, I've found, she founds disfavor in my eyes. She messed up my meal. Or she was rude to me. Or whatever. And so here's what you have to understand. In that culture, especially, women had absolutely no power in this. Whenever people want to say Christianity just crushes women's rights and all that, they have no understanding what they're talking about. What this did is actually protected women because they were completely dependent on their husbands in that particular culture. And so if a guy says, I'm going to marry you, and they get married, and then for some reason he decides he wants out, and he tries to find some legalistic loophole to divorce her, well, she was on her own. And now she's considered very taboo in that culture. She's, if you will, used goods in a lot of ways. And so this woman would be stuck. And so boundaries were placed around saying this, look, you need to understand, if it's going to go to this point, there's got to be some legitimacy behind this. And there's got to be some reality behind it. And this is not something you can undo. In fact, if you divorce her, you're not, you're not marrying her back later if these things play out. And there was some horrific stuff that was going on. And these laws were written because of the hardness of heart that the people had to try to protect women and to protect the institute and push forward, if you will, on the gravity of the marital bounds. This was not about, so when can I do it? It's, it's really interesting because on the Joni Mitchell side, you have them saying, I don't need some piece of paper to tell me that we're married. And then on this other side, you've got people coming in saying, all I need is that piece of paper and then I don't have to be married. That's what's going on in this case. And so Jesus is being pushed. What is your opinion on divorce? When can someone get divorced? When can someone not get divorced? What are the proper circumstances in which divorce can happen? And really what their emphasis is, how far can I go and yet still remain within God's law, yet end up divorced? That's the reality of it. And so it's really important. This, this should sound familiar to some degree or another. I mean, I, I've dealt with this stuff in a counseling situation many, 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 many times. So let's say people come to Jeff. Pastor Jeff, uh, this is what's going on in my marriage. And uh, wh- what can I do? How can I get divorced? What are the things that can I happen? What's the Christian answer for when divorce is allowed or isn't divorced? Well, we, we don't care what Jeff has to say. Amen? You can say it. Amen? <laughs> we don't. 
We don't. We talked about it Sunday. Do I have words of life? You can say it. No, I do not have words of life. Wake up, wake up. I, is the paint fumes putting you guys out? I mean, they're not bad, but no, I do not have the words of life. What is important is what God has to say. And so take a look at what Jesus does and how he answers this question. Verse six. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. So when the question of divorce and what's permissible and what's not comes up to Jesus, he doesn't bog himself down in the details of what's permissible and what doesn't. The first thing he does is he goes all the way back to the beginning. He says it literally, in the beginning, from the beginning of creation. Let me remind you guys, before we talk about any of this stuff, what the purpose is in the first place. An important thing for us to understand because our culture does not have a grasp on what the purpose of marriage is in the first place. So Jesus says this. Let's go back to the first place. And what he's doing here is going to quote Genesis 1 verse 27. And then he's going to quote Genesis 2 verses 24 through 25. Very common marriage, uh, marriage ceremony passages if, if you're getting married by a pastor here. And so this is the passage. Genesis 1 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then the second passage that Jesus is quoting, Genesis 2, verse 24 to 25, says this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And then the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's Genesis 2, 24 and 25. So before we talk about the details of what Jesus is saying when he quotes this passage, the first thing that is really important that we understand is this. And it seems, for some of you, this seems ridiculously elemental to start at, but it's important. We have to do that in this day. When Jesus quotes Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, he's not quoting a parable. He's not quoting it that it's some allegory. That, well, you've heard that made-up, fictional story about creation, about Adam and Eve and all these things. He quotes every single time that he quotes the Old Testament passages, especially Genesis, he quotes them as absolute fact. Really important to understand. There's actually debate amongst even Christian scholars in the world today about is there a literal historical Adam and Eve or was that just some sort of allegory that was put together for us to learn from? And it seems ridiculous to have those kinds of discussions, but we need to understand that Jesus had no such debate. He teaches this as absolutely literal. And if you read Colossians, you see that Jesus was present during creation, that Jesus was involved in the process of creation. So I figure he was there, he should know, right? And then you go, but what if he's making it up? Well, even he said, well, here's how you can know if you can trust me. I'm going to die. Three days later, I'm going to rise again. I've been to the tomb myself. It's empty. It is a historical reality, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you can trust him in the resurrection, you can trust him in everything else. So if your basis is not that this is the true and inspired word of God, then we already are on two completely different foundations as we begin this discussion. 
So it is really difficult to, for someone who does not believe in the Scriptures uh, for me to interact with them. It's not that I'm unwilling to. I would love to, but you're coming at it from two completely different angles. It's going to make it a real challenge. You need to understand Jesus preaches Genesis as absolutely true. So that's where we're coming from. Amen on that? That's where we're coming from. So what are some things that we can see even from the very quotes that Jesus speaks about regarding marriage? Well, how about this? I got four things. Number one, marriage is exclusive. Marriage is exclusive. It says in verse six, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. This is something we're going to deal with in much greater detail, so I'm going to avoid the rabbit trail as much as I can, but with regards to marriage and homosexual marriage and all of those sorts of things, the Bible is crystal clear in the intended design for marriage. It was designed male and female. It it really doesn't take much more than a junior high kid learning anatomy to see that there was a specific design even physiologically with our very body parts. Two go together, the rest don't. So it's a very easy thing to see how this sort of stuff plays out, but it's very debated today. But this is God's created design. This is not talking about where our inclinations, what about desires, can someone be born with those kind of desires? We're going to deal with that in a couple of weeks, shelve all of that kind of stuff. I'm just talking about the design and created intent for the, the office, if you will, the institution of marriage, okay? It is exclusive. Absolutely it is. It's for men and women. Number two, um, and this isn't one we think about too much, but marriage is disruptive. Marriage is disruptive. It says that he is to leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So this means that there is a family that is complete and intact and, and, and content and things are going well. And they're over here, there's another family that's complete and intact and things are going well. And one dude comes to the other family and says, sir, I would like to uh, remove your daughter from your family structure. I'm going to move her into my pad and I'm going to sleep with her if that's okay with you. I have daughters. I would say that's incredibly disruptive. That is incredibly disruptive. And I already weep for the day. Now, if he asks like that, the answer is clearly no, right? I mean, that's just the reality. But, but it, is, it, does, uh, uh, it does benefit us to point out the reality that you are literally ending a specific type of relationship and the way these relationships happen instantly changes the way someone is married. And a lot of people deal with a lot of drama and problems in their marriage because they don't understand this. They never leave, they never cleave. Um, I push it even further. I think that it's, I think those steps are in order. If a, a young man wants to come to my house one day and wants to ask for my daughter's hands in marriage, my first question is going to be, have you left? And what I mean by that is, are you on your own two feet? Do you have a job? Are you worshiping Jesus on your own? Or are you still being drugged to church by mom and dad every weekend? Like, are you showing that you are putting into place the ability to bring my wife into, or my daughter, I should say, into a family structure? Do you have a game plan whatsoever? I mean, that, to me, that's an order. It's debatable, so we won't debate it today. But it is disruptive, there's no doubt. You are leaving one family and coming into a new one. Number three, um, marriage is sexual. Marriage is very, it, it is sexual. It's very, right here in the very design for marriage, the two become one. And I don't think we need to get too graphic. There's even a kid or three in the room, so we're not gonna. But I'm just gonna assume we all understand what's being talked about here without going into the Greek. There is a absolute union that takes place. Absolute union. And so many, we could make a line out the door with people that have 
chosen to do things their own way and to enter into that sort of union before the commitment part was ever added to the equation. And then when those relationships end, there is a horrific ripping and tearing and there's pain and agony in that because there is something even supernatural that has taken place when two people come together in that way that is designed to happen within the context of marriage. And to do it in any other way, it is warring against your soul. And, and I could give you a litany of people to talk to to see how that's actually played out. I think you can even see the effects in our culture, but I don't want to get bogged down on that today. Uh, marriage is sexual. The, the last thing is this, and this is where I want to really push on. Marriage is permanent. Marriage is permanent. What God has joined together, let no man separate. They are no longer two, but one. What God has joined together, let no man separate. There is a way, and I have heard it done, and I've probably done it myself in more foolish days, but there is a way to take this passage and teach it in a way that sounds biblical and accurate, but you're teaching it against the very heart of what Jesus is trying to do. Because people will take this passage and go, let's use this passage to do a teaching on here is when it's acceptable to divorce. But is that what Jesus is doing in this text? No. What he's doing in this text is to say, stop looking for the out. Don't build your marriage from the beginning wanting to understand what the acceptable reasons or, or, or excuses by which you can bail out of it are. That's not the emphasis. The emphasis overwhelmingly of Jesus' teachings regard marriage are an emphasis on fidelity and faithfulness and forever. Let no man separate. This is how marriage has been designed. And our culture today, just like the one in Jesus' day, seems intent on redefining it or finding a way to end it for any little fault that they find in their spouse. And this happens all the time. I was heartbroken to talk to an old friend even today as I'm literally preparing a message on divorce to find out that divorce papers had been served today by God-fearing people, one with another. And it's just heartbreaking to see how this plays out. Um, but this is, this is rampant in our culture today, absolutely rampant. And as a result, people tend to approach this, this passage in that out. But Jesus' emphasis is on absolute faithfulness, permanence, married forever. That's why I, I tell people when, when they're getting married, I, say, I just want you to understand, before we even start the premarital counseling, I only do one kind, forever. That's the whole goal. When you come and stand before one another in the marriage ceremony, you're never going to talk about your feelings. You're going to talk about, I will love you forever. I don't let you write your own vows because you won't write forever. And I want forever to be in there because that is the purpose of marriage. It's forever. Now you can go, but, but why? What if I'm in a bad marriage? Or, or, or what if I just, I, we're just not feeling it anymore? What if we made a mistake? What if I didn't do my homework in advance and now I'm married to the wrong person, but now I'm stuck? And God loves me, right? So, so God wouldn't want me to be stuck in a marriage and be unhappy forever, would he? Those are legitimate questions. Wednesday nights here, we gather together for the purpose of disciple-making. The understanding of the, the emphasis from which we teach on Wednesday nights is that you gathered here today are wanting to go, as Jesus calls us to do, to go be disciple makers in the world around us, in the community, in our families, with our friends. And so ask yourself, 
How would you answer that question? If someone said that to you, I, I'm in a bad marriage right now. It doesn't seem like it's getting any better. I don't know what to do. And does God really want me to be miserable forever? Because it, it's one thing if I'm miserable for a week or three weeks or three years, but what if it's 50? Like, is that really what God wants for me? What would your answer to that be? Here's what I want you to understand. This is, the, this is why. Why does the church get so worked up about marriage? Why can't they just leave people alone to do whatever it is they want? Why do they care about divorce rates? Why can't they just deal with what's going on there and leave that alone? Because you've got to understand, marriage is not just something. It is a sacred thing that has a massive importance set upon it. And I want you guys to see this. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 is maybe one of the most, if not the most famous passage on marriage in the entire Bible. And it's famous because of the wives submit part of it. That's the part that has either been villainized by one side arguing for equal rights and not understanding how this passage actually plays out, or it's been villainized on the other side because men have been abusive and they have tried to keep women in subjection and said, you just need to submit. And it's just, we've made a mess of this historically. And so it's not one that people like to talk about a lot, but it's the most important passage probably on marriage in all the scriptures. In Ephesians 5, it starts in verse 22. And I want you to track with the entire thought here. It says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Sounds old school, doesn't it? Sounds like, oh, it's just old school, traditional, fundamentalist, backwoods, Baptist. They probably handle snakes, that kind of mess. Verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife And the two shall become one flesh. And then the key verse for this whole thing. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The most important verse that you have to understand in this whole passage, verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The idea is this. The Bible tells us this. Christ was crucified before the foundations of the earth. That the rescue plan, if you will, for all of us who sin and fall short of God's glory was put into place before the earth was even created. God knew what he was going to do. And then in the very beginning, God creates heaven and earth. God creates Adam. God creates Eve. He brings in the first marriage ceremony, God comes just as, as a, a dad walks his daughter down the aisle in a marriage ceremony. The Bible says Adam, it, or God brings Eve to Adam. There's this first marriage that takes place. 
But the plan of the gospel has been in place long before, before marriage was ever created. And what Ephesians tells us here is that marriage was created with a very specific purpose, and that is to refer to Christ and the church. In in other words, this, the purpose of marriage is to recreate the gospel. That's the reason that marriage is sacred. That's the the reason that that marriage is is so important and why the church is so, uh, we must do whatever we can to protect the institute because this is one of the vessels by which God proclaims the gospel to the world around. There's two institutions, marriage and the church. And the way this plays out, I know you've heard me say this before, so I'll be fast, but the way this plays out is in the world all around us, we see people going into marriage just like the people in Moses' day were, just like the people in Jesus' day were, just like the people in our day are. They, they come into marriage saying, I'm going to come alongside you because I view the purpose of marriage as your job is to make me happy. I want you because you make me happy. That's the way most people look at marriage. And it becomes a very conditional approach to it. As long as you behave lovingly, I will respond in the loving ways that I am required to do. But the moment that someone stops, the moment the benefit ends, whatever the case may be, and it could be anything. I mean, it could be as silly as cooking. But often it could be things like gaining weight, um, separate interests, financial concerns, whatever the case may be. If a husband and wife end up in a place where they don't feel they're benefiting from the relationship anymore in the world around us, what do they do? We separate. We just end it. We have no fault divorce now for this, or divorce for this very reason. It's just not working out. We can't come to common ground. This isn't fun anymore. We're miserable, whatever the case may be. And so we're just going to end the marriage now. We'll go our separate ways. And then we'll try to, we'll, we'll try to just figure things out from there. And then when you, when you play out the statistics of that, you can see that it's absolutely true. Because it is incredible how high the statistics are in instant second marriages. So we get out of this marriage because we're miserable, and now we know, or we think we know, what it is we're really missing that's going to make us happy. So we find that second person to grant us that which we've been missing and jump right into it, and second divorce rates have an astronomical, excuse me, second marriages have astronomical divorce rates. And the reason is, is because people are going into marriage with this completely selfish viewpoint that says, I'm looking for the person that will complete me and make me happy. But that is not the purpose of marriage. The purpose of marriage is others-focused completely. And we know this, and we all agree with this, because that's what the marriage vows are to begin with. We stand before the other, and we say, it's not about what I feel. This is what I will do no matter what. I will love you when, we, when you're healthy. I will love you when you're sick. I will love you if we're rich. I will love you if we're poor. The whole purpose of the wedding ceremony is to remove all of the conditions out and you're entering into a covenant of unconditional love. Where do you think we get that? Why do we do that? Because it is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ who says to us, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That Jesus says, Jeff, I'm going to love you when you're worshiping and reading your Bible like a good boy like you're supposed to. But I also love you in those many, many days in which you're not. So much so that I'm going to send my son to die for you. That's the message of the gospel to us. That's what Romans 5, 8 tells us. That even while we were yet sinners, in our absolute worst, that's when Christ died for us. 
And in his death, what did Jesus endure? Separation from God. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back on me? But because of the gospel, what is it he then proclaims? Hebrews tells us, I will never what? Leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. I will not be like the people that you're used to out there. I will love you forever. I will never turn my back on you. I will always be there. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when people see our marriages, our marriages are supposed to symbolize and reenact that. That says, I am entering into this new covenant with you, not like the one out there, but I'm entering into this covenant with you that says, no matter what, I'm going to love you. I'm going to love you no matter what. I will love you through richer, poorer, better, or worse. Even the very fact that we put worse into marriage ceremonies, isn't that a little bit strange? Have you ever thought about that? If you really break marriage vows down on this beautiful greatest day of our life, doves flying and white and flowers, and we're just like, if things get awful, I'll stick it out. But that's there because marriage is a gospel covenant. That's what it is. And if we start messing with that and tinkering with that and playing fast and loose with the very words of God and trying to think, take that which God created and designed for a specific purpose and just say, well, we'll just, we'll just tweak this and we'll just change these things around. You cannot mess with that and not expect that there's going to be serious ramifications that come. Not because God is trying to drop the hammer on us, but because we're trying to use something in a way in which it is not designed to be used. And so if you go into marriage and you're like, I'm going into this marriage because I want this person to make me happy. I've chosen this one. I found the one. They complete me. Thank you, Jerry Maguire. Well, you have just put on them a weight that they're not designed to carry. And so all through your relationship, there's this weight and pressure. Like we have to make sure we got we to gotta toe the line. We got to behave a certain way or they might abandon us. That's not the gospel. That's legalism. If I don't, if I don't uh, pray enough, if I don't give enough, if I don't worship enough, God's not going to love me anymore. But that's the, that's the reality of most marriages outside the church. But God desires that our marriages would be different. And that's why they're permanent. And so you go, but, but what if it's really like that? What if I'm in a bad marriage? You might, there's, there's people in here, I'm sure, that are in what would be considered by many bad marriages. And so I just have to ride that out? What if I'm miserable forever? That just doesn't sound right. But at its very core, if you say, man, that's not good enough for me. I can't do this. I can't be miserable forever. I can't do all of this. What you need to understand at the very core of even that statement is a lack of belief in the very promises of God that says, when you honor me, I'm honoring you. It's an absolute lack of belief. I mean, the Bible is really clear. So for example, and I'm almost done here, right before Jesus goes to the cross, he's with his dis- disciples, and they're still to the very end arguing about what they're going to get out of their relationship with him. Who's the greatest? Who's going to sit in the seat of honor? Who's the best disciple? All this kind of stuff, not having any clue what's about to happen. And they have communion, the Last Supper. But in the book of John, in John 13, Jesus comes to them. He disrobes himself, puts on this servant's robe. 
And he goes to each of their feet and he begins washing the disciples' feet. It's like the lowest of the lowest of the lowest service act you could possibly do. That's what Jesus is doing. And then what is it he says to them? He says, do you understand what I just did? I left an example for you. The servant is not greater than the master. In other words, if you're following me, you need to understand, I've just given you a visual representation of what your life as a disciple of me is going to look like. It is going to be a life that is lived for the service of others. And then what does he say about it? Happy are you if you do them. And so here's what we do. We're in the middle of a lot of difficulty. Maybe you're in a marriage that's difficult. Maybe you're in a, uh, uh, there's a lot of fighting. Who knows what's going on there? And so you're in this situation and you can't possibly see a way that this is going to turn out in any way that actually makes you happy. And so you have a choice to make. Will you take matters into your own hand and say, then I need to end this. I'm, I'm going to ignore the gospel aspect of this that says, I'm going to continue to serve you, even though I don't feel like I'm getting anything in return at this moment. Or will you believe in the words of Jesus Christ where he says, happy are you if you do this? And I'll tell you right now, I have seen so many times people think they're taking the easy way out by ending the marriage, and it is just not true. No matter how bad. Now, now little disclaimer here, I'm not talking about abuse relationships. I mean, there are absolutely issues that are severe that need to be dealt with. So if you think you're in one of those, let's have discussion. And if you feel like you're in one of those relationships where you're like, Jeff, it doesn't matter what I do, he's never going to respond. He might not. He might not. But the joy of the Lord is your strength. God's grace is sufficient for you. And even the fact that you're part of a church, take advantage of church community. There's things like church discipline where the elders can come alongside you and we will call your husband or your wife out on the carpet. We've done it before, we will do it again. It's not fun, but we're not bad at it. (laughs) Word of warning. (laughs) But take advantage of church community rather than taking hands into yourself. Trust that institution that God has put in place to be able to look out for you. But I'm telling you, So many times people think, this is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to end it. I'm going to get out of it, and it'll make life easier. And it never works that way. There is difficulty and pain and drama that drags out for decades, and in some cases, generations. The ramifications are severe. And you're like, well, I'm already divorced. Well, God has grace. But woe to us who go, then I will get divorced because I will trust on the grace of God on the other side of that. I'm begging you to reconsider. But I can tell you this, man. There is absolute attainable joy in marriage. I mean, my wife and I, we've, we've had ups and downs. We've had good seasons and we've had bad seasons. But I'll tell you this, man. We have, we have fun. Do you have fun in your marriage? Like, no, I have a Christian marriage. <laughs> but it, it can be fun. When a couple get together and they realize, you know what, I'm not going to enter this from this constant selfish, I'm going to fight for my territory. And when we, get, we look at it on the other end and we go, we are equal in this relationship. That's what Ephesians 5 really teaches, that we are equal in this relationship. We may have different roles, but we are equal in this relationship. And we're on the same team. 
And in reality, we want the same things out of life. We want joy, we want happiness, we want peace, we want to laugh, we want all of those things. When we realize that we're on the same team, working towards the same things, okay, maybe we're not communicating really well. Maybe that's when the church can come along and elders and others can help work through difficult situations. But to realize that in reality, we want the same things out of life and we serve the same God. And happiness and fun is absolutely attainable in marriage. We have days just like everybody else, but we laugh a lot in our home. And by the grace of God, we've seen, even through my own parents and the inevitable failure of that marriage and the heartbreak and disappointment that came through it, and, but it's been by the grace of God that we've been able to take steps to be able to say, we're not going to go there. And so, so one of the best things that my wife and I ever did, and it wasn't because we were wise, it's just because of the train wreck we'd just seen. We decided early on, we will never separate. We'll never separate. I even told her, I said, look, I don't want to sleep on the couch. I don't like sleeping on the couch. So if we go, even if we sin and go to bed angry, we'll sleep back to back. I'm fine with that, but I'm not sleeping on the couch. And every night we're going back to the same bed right there together. And by God's grace, that's the reality. And we, we've just taken that, equa- that completely out of the equation. And so this is what I'm here to say to you guys. If we were teaching this in front of a Sunday morning with a little bit more of a mixed crowd, there's a lot of different things, a lot of different angles we would want to approach on this. But the goal of Christian marriage is absolute forever faithfulness. And the reason that we can do that is because we believe in the promises of Jesus Christ. So I'm challenging you guys on that. And if, if you're in one of those kind of marriages where you throw those words around from time to time, like divorce or separate or threats or arguments or any of that kind of stuff, no more. No more. You're in it forever. Any Sandlot fans in the room? Forever. But it's a, that's a good thing. And if you're in a difficult situation right now where you're like, okay, that's fine. I'm glad you're preaching all this, but that's not going to help me because you don't know what I'm married to then you come talk to us. Let's see what we can do. Maybe sometimes there's things that are extra complicated. Maybe we need to seek outside counsel or maybe there's some history at play there that we need to work through. Maybe we need to get some people around you guys. Maybe we need to rough somebody up. I don't know. But marriage is forever. And for us as Christians, if we want to fight for the sanctity of marriage in the world around us, then we need to treat our own marriages with a certain degree of sanctity as well. And understand the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the opportunity that we have to love someone regardless of whether they actually deserve it or not. I'll make it easy for you. We don't. None of us do. All have sinned. But that's the purpose of marriage. Amen? I went way long. So like, do we have questions? Three, two, three? We'll we'll see. What's number one? Are you still married to your soulmate in heaven after you spend life on earth? Yeah, question number two. The Bible says that we're not given in marriage, but there's a lot of debate over what that means, and we'll find out when we get there. That's a depressing thing to think about. I I don't know. We're just skipping it. Go on. Next, what does this mean for the person who is already divorced, especially if it is not by choice? There is grace if it was by your choice. There's grace. God forgives. There may be ramifications and things that we have to live with and play out with regards to marriage because Jesus does go on. We didn't have time tonight. Um, But to talk about the challenges or the boundaries regarding remarriage. And so what I would say is uh, if that's a question and that's something that you're having to live through, then let's get together, have coffee, and let's talk through that. It's complicated. Um, But there's no easy solution once divorce occurs. 
But here's what I do know, that God is our source of joy. God is our source of happiness. And so there is still the ability for us to lean on the promises of God no matter what we have been through in our past. It is when we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. The beauty of the gospel. Amen? Another one. I understand the premise that the last day is the most important and agree to be working word, this is Sam, a goal, but for those who are married, shouldn't today be, I'm just teasing, I'm sorry, the spelling, (laughs) his wife's laughing now, Um, sorry, but for those who are married, shouldn't today be the most important, I I disagree with that, I disagree with that, I I believe this is a whole nother thing, but the idea is, is that through our lives, we are getting closer and closer and closer to the very image of Christ. That's what he's molding us into. And so if he's doing both of that, if we're becoming more and more Christ-like every single day, then at the end, that day when we're 85 years old, whether Jesus comes through the sky, that would be fantastic, or whether we breathe our last breath in a hospital somewhere, there's an actual legacy and a witness that we're living towards. And so what I'm talking about is not that today, I mean, today might be your last day in marriage, but what I'm talking about is living towards a goal that says we're going to stick this out to the end because the goal of marriage is to represent the gospel and the gospel itself says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so if you reverse engineer your marriage to have the end goal in sight, you're going to find yourself, I mean, there's an actual goal where you're going with this. And so to reverse engineer your marriage is to saying, we are going to be married when I'm 85 years old, no matter what. And so what we'll do in the meantime, we can be miserable forever, or we can start to trust the promises of God and start working together. And I think setting that goal makes all the difference in the world. And it's how you finish. It's not how you, we got high school kids leaving right now to go to Disneyland. I assure you, if they don't end up at Disneyland, they're going to be severely disappointed, right? The destination's important. The destination's important. Maybe, maybe you guys need to have a conversation about that. All of us, just from time to time with our husbands, with our wives to just say, where are we going to be when we're 80? What do we want life to look like? What do we want this to look like with regards to our kids? It's not a conversation that we have very often, but it's a really, really fruitful one. Amen? We're way out of time and I'm way late, so why don't you stand and I'll pray for us. God, I pray that you would just give all of us grace in our marriages, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for those of us that are, that are married, that you have given us the gift of a husband or a wife, Lord. And, and I'm thankful, Lord, that you've created us to be people of community that we don't have to go through life together, that that's what we have been designed for. And I'm grateful, Lord, more than anything, because it does represent the gospel and that you are the one who will be with us forever. Lord, I, I pray, Lord, for those who aren't married. There's people in this room probably that really desire to be married and they're not. And so even the very subject here is a difficult one. But I pray, God, that even the reminder of the gospel, that you would be their husband, that you would be the bride, that you would be, Lord, the one who stands in and is strong for them. Because in reality, Lord, we find happiness and joy um, not in people, but in you. It's the very core of the gospel. So I pray, God, that they would find themselves with the ability by the gift of your spirit to trust in your promises, Lord, even in that. Lord, there's probably people in this room, Lord, who, who have been divorced and maybe who wrestle with shame or stigma or, or heartache as a result of that. And I thank you, God, that your grace is sufficient, that your love covers a multitude of sin, that you hear our cry and our pain, that, Lord, you are near the brokenhearted. I thank you, Lord, that you are a God who makes beauty out of ashes and is in the very business of restoration, Lord. And so I pray, God, you would do that for them. That, Lord, you would just bless those who have been through heartache and difficulty in their relationships, God, and that they might 
to an ever-increasing degree keep their eyes upon you. And so, Lord, for those of us, Lord, who are married, I pray, God, we would take a gospel approach to our marriages, Lord, that we would take it seriously, the mission and the opportunity that you've given us. And I pray, God, that the goal would be faithfulness in every marriage here. But I also pray, God, that you would lead us to that still water, to those green pastures, that our marriages would be marked by joy and peace. For, Lord, that is who you are. You're a God of joy, peace, and love. So I just pray you'd be with all of us, Lord, as we leave this place. Give us the power by your spirit to live these things out, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. We'll see you on Sunday morning. God bless.